Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver, joined tonight, as always, by Mr. Mike McDaniel. Mike, uh, how how you doing? Are you, you doing okay? Do you need a hug? Is uh, you, you still with us here? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, rough rough weekend. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech. You know they're good for about. Uh, you know, one of these losses a year, I feel like. Um, at least that's what's been the case in recent years. This felt like a different team, and I, and I think it is a different team. I think it's a good team. But at the same time, it's tough to go into the Carrier Dome where Tech has had a history of kind of struggling. Um, the, the last four or five trips to the Carrier Dome have not been kind to Virginia Tech. Um, Virginia Tech's last... The last time they played Syracuse was back in 2003 in Blacksburg. And, of course, being at home, Virginia Tech wins that game 51-7. to So you're hoping for something along the lines of that this weekend. Uh, but, of course, it wasn't to be. Uh, just a really, really tough weekend for the Hokies. I, I didn't think running the ball uh, came back to haunt them. Uh, the fact that they've really lacked that running game now for a while. Um, and then just some questionable decisions at quarterback for Gerard Evans. I think... You can argue this is the first time uh, this year that Evans has had a really poor game. Um, he, he had some questionable decisions, at least in the running game um, against Liberty in the opener, but you you know channel that up to his first game as a Division One college football player and leave it at that. But this is his first game. He's really struggled passing the football. Um, you, you know, his numbers, you know, on, on the outside, if, if you didn't see any of the game, his numbers look pretty good, but... He had the one crucial red zone turnover um, after Terrell Edmonds intercepted a pass to completely swing the momentum. So, you know, you're, you're going in there at 17-9, and he throws that pick that could have led them in to tie the game, potentially. And then, luckily, Virginia Tech defense held Syracuse for what was only like, felt like the second or third time all day. And, you know, after that happens, you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, Hopefully they can punch it in, and they did, and they got the two-point conversion, 17-all. And, you know, Tech's defense just really struggled with the Syracuse passing attack all day. I mean, I think that's the one major takeaway. It's that no matter how good your defense is, Syracuse is still going to score on you, and it's going to be really scary if you know Babers is able to end up actually recruiting at this school because if he does, Syracuse could be a player here, even in the Atlantic Division where you got Louisville, you got Clemson, and of course you got Florida State. So it's not exactly an easy school to recruit to anyway because you're going playing football at Syracuse and New York. But if you know Babers finds a way, I'm telling you what, man, he's he's got an offense in place there. No matter what the personnel, they're going to go out there and compete. But I think the one overarching thing is Gerard Evans and his struggles that he had in this game. And then just the fact that the Hokies offense as a whole you know, they weren't able to score against one of the worst defenses in college football. I mean, I think that's the one takeaway from the weekend. Just a really disappointing performance for the Hokies. Syracuse 31, Virginia Tech 17. So to, to remind our listeners, I was at a wedding this weekend in Atlanta. I actually made it to the Georgia Tech-Georgia Southern game before that uh, and got to the wedding in time by, like, the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. Chin. But 
all that to say that I didn't get to watch a ton of, of this game or many of these games, um, and so I'm. I, I mean, I, I was kind of monitoring it a little bit, and it just it seemed like Syracuse kind of jumped out to a lead. They were up seven nothing, and then they were up seventeen to three at halftime. And I just kept thinking, okay, well, it's a slow start for Virginia Tech. They'll they'll pick it up. Okay, well, just a bad first half. You know, Fuente will get him in order at halftime. Okay, now it's the fourth quarter, and you're still losing. Oh man, there's you know you're down two touchdowns, and the game just ended. Like, oh god, what happened? Um, Virginia Tech was a 23 point favorite in this game. I, I mean, is there any really good just overall explanation for what happened here, or did they just come out and get beat by, a, a I guess a high performing Syracuse team? I mean, they came out flat. I mean, that was, you know, first drive of the game. Dungey drops back, finds Irv Phillips over the middle, and he takes it to the house. I mean, he's got nothing but green grass in front of him on a crossing route, a deep cross over the middle. Um, and it was like that all day, not not necessarily like the long passing plays. Uh, they gave up another one later on. But, you know, overall, I thought Tech's defense, despite the yards they gave up, I thought they played okay. Um, the, the whole issue was that the offense really couldn't get much of anything going. A lot of third and long situations, and when you get into third and long against a defense that has struggled for most of the year, you start to get a little bit of confidence if you're Syracuse, and I think that's pretty pretty much what happened this game. But it, if there's one thing to point to with the Virginia Tech offense, and it's been a problem for most of the season, it's just the fact that they haven't run the ball very well, um, even in this game. And you know, they kind of went to a running game there to start the second half with Trayvon McMillan. It was working, and I'm just wondering why Justin Fuente didn't stick with it. I think that's the one the, the one thing that I think they're going to go back and watch the tape and saying, why didn't we really stick with the running game, or why didn't we run as much at the beginning of the game? I mean, it's easy to say now, you know, you get down early in a game like that, and you want to throw your way back into it, but... I think the Hokies' offense is much better when they're balanced, and they re- haven't really had a consistent running game all season long, which is is troubling, given the fact that they've played so well on offense. You knew if they faced a, you know, if they came into a game and faced the kind of pressure they faced with Syracuse, which was a little bit unexpected, the way they were able to pressure the quarterback, they would have to take some pressure off by running the football. And this is a weekend you were hoping they would be able to do it with Trayvon McMillan, and they really just had trouble getting them going other than that first drive in the second half. So Virginia Tech needs to figure out a running game. I think that's a clear identity crisis on offense. Um, you know, they're throwing the ball great right now. Evans, for the most part, has made great decisions all season long. But I, th- I think if you're the Hokies, you've you got to get back to running the football well in order to win games. And, and, you know, Justin Fuente said that from the outset this season. He said, you know, you throw the ball to score, but you run the ball to win. And Virginia Tech wasn't able to run the ball well on Saturday and end up costing the game. Virginia Tech comes out of this game with six and a half yards per play. Uh, that's their second highest mark of the year behind only the East Carolina game, but also their second lowest play count of the year at 72. Uh, again, the only one with less was East Carolina. So being efficient with the plays, but maybe not able to possess the ball enough, and, and that'll get you. I mean, like we said in the preview, this, the, the carrier down is a tough place to play for anybody. Um, there have been several times over the last few years that Syracuse has kept games very close and even won outright against teams that it didn't really seem they even had any business being in, in the game with. So um, good win for Syracuse, rough loss for Virginia Tech. I think the good news is, though, Mike, is 
this kind of reeks to me of a bit of a look-ahead game as Virginia Tech comes back Thursday night of this week at home against Miami in a game that I think sets up very nicely for them. They'll be looking for some redemption. Uh, They'll have their home atmosphere uh, on a Thursday night, which is, of course, one of the most classic environments in all of college football is Thursday night in Blacksburg. So uh, sets up nicely for the Hokies to rebound. Um, Certainly going against a Miami team that'll have to rebound as well. We'll get to that here in a little while, but um, I think the Hokies will be just fine. But uh, a good one for Syracuse, for uh, Dino Babers and his boys. Um, Was that... First in the conference, Mike, or second? I believe it was their second. I, I Let me double-check that. I'd like to know. Um, we, we can move on. I'll let you know here. Okay. Well, let's move on here, and let's talk a little bit. So, naturally, people schedule these weddings on Saturdays in the fall, and, uh, you know, this, these things happen, and you're obligated to go to these and, and be there to support your friends, and you're happy you can do it, and... But when you know it, it's the same days that those happen that, I don't know, just like all hell decides to break loose in the ACC. <laughs> um, now, I know, Mike, here's one of these instances, you know. So we came to this game. Clemson was a 17-point favorite at home against NC State. After, you know, a week before being a 17-point favorite on the road at Boston College, they won that game by 45 points. So this is easy. I mean, this is a home environment. It's a, a noon game against an NC State team that's not really built to beat Clemson. So, I mean, this is, a, this is a walk in the park game for Clemson, right, Mike? Wrong, Joey. It was not a walk in the park game for Clemson. Um, oh, geez. It was not. Uh, oh, geez. Can't turn the ball over. And Deshaun Watson threw a couple of crucial interceptions there uh, to keep NC State in it. Of course, the one return for a touchdown that tied the game uh yeah nc state played well and they didn't go shank apotamus on the game-winning field goal there as time expired in regulation they'd be sitting here sitting pretty probably in the top 25 with only one loss and a win over clemson um in death valley in death valley now they miss of course missed the missed the go-ahead field goal there uh, well the game-winning field goal with two seconds left in regulation and uh Dabo's boys survive after a Deshaun Watson touchdown pass on the first possession of overtime and then of course intercepting uh the pass of Ryan Finley there uh in the in the first overtime and fans storm the field and Death Valley goes nuts uh yeah I mean I mean if you look at this game it's it's tough to tell you know is it a bad offensive game for Clemson is it just a really good showing by NC State is a little bit of both I'm inclined to believe it's a little bit of both here. Just play this thing safe. Um, you know, when looking at NC State, obviously they were able to throw the ball well. Um, Ryan Finley's a good quarterback. Uh, you know, I think we thought that anyway. You know, we were thinking, okay, NC State beats Notre Dame last week. You know, we know Notre Dame isn't a very good team at this point, but we're thinking, okay, it's a pretty good win for NC State, a good stepping stone going into Clemson. And then you look at the Wolfpack, and they go in, and not only do they hang with Clemson, but they had them on the ropes there, and should have beaten them. I mean, it was it was a 35-yard field goal or whatever it was at the end of regulation that was missed. And, you know, that was a field goal, obviously. If you make it, you got the huge upset. And we're talking about how Clemson slipped up at home against an NC State team they probably should have beaten. And, Joey, the one thing that I know you and I were talking about last week on this podcast when we were previewing the game was that those noon kickoffs, even though it's in Death Valley – it was a little bit concerning that Clemson might not not necessarily come out ready to play, um, and it wasn't because they don't have the capability or, or anything like that, but those noon kickoffs, some weird stuff happens. Um, 
you know, it's not only location, but it's the time of the game and, and playing at noon on a Saturday in a pretty big game against NC State was a little questionable for the Clemson Clemson offense, especially where they seem to struggle all day. I, I think the one key turning point in this game is when Wayne Gallman left in the first quarter with a concussion. Obviously, he's the bell cow back for Clemson and we don't have him in the game. It, it's a big deal. It was pretty apparent that Clemson just didn't really have a running game without Gallman. So he's he was ruled out with a concussion. Hopefully, um, hopefully he'll be fine to play their next game, obviously. But when you look at Clemson, when you don't have a running game, it's, it's pretty tough. And all the pressure was on Deshaun Watson. And, of course, he played ended up playing very well. But it's tough. They, they got one-dimensional, and they were able to survive and, and move on. But n- not a great showing. I think a lot of it had to do with not having Gallman there, you know, from – basically middle of the first quarter on and then you know just kudos to nc state for having a great game plan going in uh they're they're another team that kind of sat on the ball a little bit joey what we'll talk about duke obviously later with louisville but um yeah yeah north carolina state made the most of the possessions they had and they were able to hang in this game and probably should have won this is like a concerning turn of fortunes for clemson who going into the louisville game we really hadn't seen them click. You know, we didn't really feel like the switch had been flipped and seen seen them go full Clemson of just, you know, running the ball up and down the field and, and scoring a whole bunch of points and racking up a whole bunch of yards, all that. We saw that against Louisville, a good Louisville defense. We saw that against what we previously thought to be a good Boston College defense last week. That's maybe up in the air as whether that's the case or not. And so we kind of thought that that was going to continue this week against NC State, but now to have this reversal of fortune in a home game against a defense that has not really been suffocating for what we figure would be lesser opposition, I mean, this is concerning, Mike. And this this is starting to remind me a little bit of Ohio State last year where you had a, a reigning national finalist come back and just not blow the doors off of a whole lot of people and just finding ways to win games that they should have been winning comfortably. And uh, just there's a lot of, I don't know. I don't know what to call it. It's just, it seems like Clemson is doing this a lot where they're just like not ready to play. They're not jazzed up. And and I don't know what what to say about it, but it just seems like it's not sustainable. Something they can keep up the whole year if they still got to go to Tallahassee and play Florida State. I mean, I think, yeah, you know, I think the problem is, you know, Dabo always has his teams ready to play, but it seems like this year it's almost like, okay, we know we're good enough to get to a national championship. Uh, Like, we know we have that kind of team. We're not losing a ton of talent. The talent that they were missing was on the defensive side of the ball. They've pretty much replaced all of it. I mean, Clemson's defense is one of the top defenses in the country. But, you know, by the same token, when looking at the Tigers, it's a little bit troubling. They, they kind of have to flip the switch, um, and I'm a little bit concerned. It feels like the switch can only be flipped against teams that are of equal talent or better talent, which makes me wonder the next couple of weekends if they have these earlier kickoffs. I know they got you know Florida State coming up in a few weeks here, but these earlier kickoff games against teams that they're not really necessarily getting up for, are they going to drop one of these games that they shouldn't? And it honestly should have been Saturday against NC State, and it wasn't, so they lucked out. So maybe it's a wake-up call for Clemson, but this completely reeks of Ohio State last year. Ohio State did the same thing. They were just hanging around, being content with just being a really, really good team all year long. And then when it came time to get up for a big game, 
all of a sudden they were just used to kind of playing asleep in, in the first half of games or, you know, not really turning it on until late in the game. And, you know, that hurt Ohio State last year and kept them from reaching their potential because Ohio State had the talent to go to a national championship last year or at least at the very least make the college football playoff. And it was the same issue. So when looking at Clemson, they're obviously really talented. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the entire country and Deshaun Watson, if not the best quarterback in the entire country. Defensively, they're fantastic. It's it's pretty clear what Wayne Gallman means to them after yesterday, after seeing him get hurt and then seeing what their offense was after he came out of the game. So I think when looking at Clemson, I mean, they need to take this take this game as a lesson and say, hey, we're not going to come out and play asleep the rest of the season. We're going to come out and try to blow every team out because I think if they're playing that kind of football, they're going to be pretty tough to beat in a team that's going to be a force to be reckoned with here if they're able to make the college football playoff and win the ACC. Well, they've got the talent for it and they've got the schedule for it. We'll just have to see if they've got the mindset for it. Moving on to another game that went exactly as we planned it. Uh, Louisville... <laughs> Louisville, a five-touchdown favorite on Friday night against Duke. Uh, Louisville coming off of a bye week following the Clemson game, so they had good rest. The Lamar Jackson touchdown counter coming into this game was at 28, and Mike, I think by now it's at, at least like 35, right? It's he, he scored like seven or eight touchdowns in this game, didn't he? Until he only scored two. <laughs> wah, wah. This this was one of those games, Joey. It went exactly opposite of how we thought, right? Um, I think, you know what I think part of this is, honestly, is we don't know or we didn't know what to really make of Duke, you know? And it's pretty clear that Duke's got some talent, but they don't have the talent that Louisville has. But by the same token, like, David Cutcliffe's a pretty good coach, and he had the team ready to play. And, of course... Who would have thought they'd go to Louisville in a road game? And this is a game that is a little bit deceiving because it was a three-point game up until, what was it, two and a half minutes left when Lamar Jackson ran in? I mean, there, there wasn't a whole lot of time left to make it 24-14 to 14 on that two-yard touchdown run there late. You know, it's interesting because Louisville's offense, for as explosive as it's been, it looked pretty pedestrian on Friday night. Um, I, I credit Duke. For this, you know, I thought Louisville played one of their worst games this season offensively, but Duke's defense, especially against the pass, was much better than I expected. Um, they were able to keep Lamar Jackson in the pocket for the most part, which is obviously the game plan, right? Keep him in the pocket, make him throw, and then hope your defensive backs can contest the receivers that they're playing against enough to, you know, to make some plays and, and, and slow at least slow down the Louisville offense. And that's what Duke ended up doing, and they did it to perfection because Louisville really, I mean, Lamar Jackson throws for under 200 yards. They really couldn't get on track there in the passing game. And obviously Lamar Jackson carrying the ball the way he did, especially in the second half, ended up being the difference between a win and a loss for Louisville. So, you know, this is a game that doesn't really worry me, uh, you know, if, if I'm a Louisville fan. You know, you're going to have a game or two like this every year where, you know, you face a team either at home or on the road that you probably should beat by a few touchdowns that comes out just ready to play and has a really good game plan, and you got to grind it out. And that's what Louisville did, and good teams find a way to win those tight games. And that's what the Cardinals did. So, I, you know, long term, I wouldn't really be that concerned about the Cardinals, but 
when looking at Duke, I mean, heck of a coaching job by David Cutcliffe there to get him ready to play because they were right in that game up until the very end. They should be proud of the way they played. I'll tell you what's weird, though, Mike, is that we sit here and talk about this is a bad offensive output for Louisville and, and the Duke defense really kind of held them down. Louisville still went for almost 470 yards. They still had 7.7 yards per play. The problem was that they only ran 61 plays. And now they they had about a two yards per play increase over what they did to Clemson. The difference was they ran, what, 28 fewer plays? Or, excuse me, 38 fewer plays than they did in that game. Um, so that was really, I mean, that was the Duke game plan, was coming to this game and just sit on the ball. Uh, they Duke held the ball for over 37 minutes of this game. Kind of kept Louisville from ever getting in rhythm. Kind of frustrated them and, and all this. And sucked the life out of what was really, I mean, this is a blackout game. Uh, coming two weeks off a, off a bye week. You know, returning home from a, a very near miss against, you know, a national stage. All of this. By all means, this should have been a route by Louisville. But Duke came out and had a great game plan to just suck the air out of the stadium and suck the life out of Louisville. Uh, and, and it almost worked. Um, th- this was a three-point game with, I think, about two minutes left. Um, yeah, I mean, Louisville just, just got frustrated and got a little bit stubborn, didn't really want to change up what they were doing. And Duke is a, is a disciplined enough team, and I, I will stick by this, Mike, and I, I didn't really think that this was going to be the case again this year. But it's kind of starting to look that way is I don't know that Duke – really is going to go out and beat anybody. They're just going to wait for people to beat themselves. And and Duke in kind of on the other side will not beat themselves. And and frankly, I mean in college football that's not a bad strategy. Teams will beat themselves if you give them long enough. Um, but yeah, Duke Duke played well. They executed their game plan well here. The the stats kind of look otherwise where Louisville outgained them by over 200 yards and and all this, but uh a dangerously close game for the Cardinals, Mike. Yeah, you know, and, and when looking at Duke, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you're David Cutcliffe, you're sitting there and you coach your kids to the best of your ability and just hope that, you know, they're well enough coached and they're in a position to win because when you look at the teams that Duke's playing, if they beat themselves, Duke has enough talent to hang around, hang around, hang around, and then win a game that they shouldn't. I feel like they've done that for the better part of the last three or four years with Cutcliffe as coach. Um, We've seen this resurgence of Duke since like 2011, 2012, where they've been a pretty good team and a well-coached team, and they don't turn the ball over a ton. They don't commit a ton of penalties they don't beat themselves. And when you have a team that doesn't beat themselves in college football, you're always going to be good for six or seven wins. I think that's a position that Duke's kind of in right now because they're losing a lot of close games this year. They had a lot of attrition there, a lot of guys they lost to the NFL and to graduation uh, at the end of last year. And this year, you know, while the talent might not necessarily be there compared to years past, I feel like when looking at Duke, they, they still have a pretty, a pretty solid young core and they still have the coaching staff in place there to give them the mindset of, hey, as long as we don't beat ourselves, we're going to be in almost every game that we play. And that's what Duke's done this year. And look, they did against Notre Dame. Notre Dame beat themselves. They almost did against Louisville, tried to make Louisville beat themselves. Duke beat Army a couple weeks ago. Army's a pretty good football team. Army beat themselves late in that game. 
this is the thing that Duke's been doing, and it's not really new, but it's something we should have known better, especially when predicting the outcome of this game, Joey. We're like, oh yeah, Louisville, definitely cover the spread. They'll score 40, 50 points on Duke. They didn't because they just hung around. They had a really good game plan, and they came out and executed it to the best of their ability on the road, which is not an easy task to do, especially when going to Louisville in the blackout game. I mean, it's almost like the bye week almost hurt the Cardinals. I think if they're, you know, if they come fresh off of that game against Clemson, maybe it's a little bit different. They don't have the bye week, the down week to rest after the way the offense was clicking um, heading into that game. So the bye week maybe hurt Louisville a little bit, but it's good to see them get that win in a pretty tough, hard-fought game. Yeah. So one of the the only real troubling thing for Louisville I see on here on the stat sheet is I mean the defense only gave up 239 yards. That's not a lot. They only gave up 14 points. That's not a lot. The biggest problem is that Duke was eight of 16 on third downs, um, and and one of two on fourth downs. So you figure they had 16 third downs, and nine of them they got a first down without having to punt. Um, so that's that's not a good mark, and that's something that I think was a a major staple of the Todd Grantham defense at Georgia. I know a lot of Georgia fans had this third and Grantham saying, uh, basically you know. Doesn't matter what it is, they're going to get it. Um, I can relate. But, uh, I mean, that's that's the only thing that worries me going forward. The only other thing I want to point out here, another just uh, kind of telltale sign of what Duke was doing here, Louisville only had nine possessions in this game. Um, Louisville, five times in the first half, they had touchdown, punt, field goal, punt, punt. And then in the second half, they had touchdown, fumble, missed field goal, touchdown. And then they had one a one-play, minus-two-yard drive, taking a knee to end the game. So only nine real drives, which, again, just a kind of a tribute to what Duke was doing of, of their game plan. So well, well done, Duke. You executed your game plan. Almost pulled off a, a pretty major upset here. Uh, that would have been a win over a top-ten team on the road, which is not anything to scoff at by any means, and certainly not for, for uh, folks looking at Duke and where they've been recently. But, uh, yeah, Louisville survives and, and moves forward here. Okay. Here's another game where, you know, exactly what happened, you know, is, is what we thought was going to happen, right? I mean, Wake Forest, the Steeman Deacons. The Steeman Deeks. God love them. Our, our Wake Forest Demon Deacons here, Mike, uh, they unfortunately were matched up against a wildly – talented Florida State team in Tallahassee. Florida State a three-touchdown favorite in this game, and they, I mean, they ran away with this thing, right? This is like a runaway train kind of game, wasn't it? Wrong, Joey. They did not run away with this game. My goodness. And that's the second game we screwed up this weekend, but when looking at Wake Forest, hey man, it's that run defense, right? I mean, Dalvin Cook had to run the ball 25 times for 115. Uh, they kept him out of the end zone, which was huge. They played pretty good pass defense as well. DeAndre Francois, he ended up throwing for 319, but it just seemed like they were really struggling offensively. They didn't really know what they were doing in this game, um, identity-wise. Uh, they knew they were going to try to force-feed the ball to Travis Rudolph. That worked out. He had 13 catches for 238 yards. So if you had to you know, break out next factor in this game, obviously Travis Rudolph coming off of a few games here uh, the last few weeks where he had not played nearly as well as, you know, Florida State needs him to play uh, in order to be competitive. But Florida State comes out. It's a hard-fought game. I thought Wake Forest's defense did an excellent job. Um, It it was bend but don't break mentality. And like we said with Wake Forest, you know, it's going to be, hey, we're going to try to stop the run. And then 
we're going to try to run the football ourselves. Um, and they pounded the, pounded the rock 32 times for only 68 yards in this game. So the lack of running game obviously hurt Wake Forest in this one. But, you know, I think that's kind of what we were expecting uh, when looking at Wake. It's that, hey, they could stop Florida State, but maybe they'd have some trouble scoring on Florida State, and I think that ended up being the, the whole issue. But I think Wake Forest defense actually played a little bit better than I was expecting against all the athletes that Florida State has in the running game and the, and the passing game. So if you're a Wake Forest fan, you're encouraged by the performance. You know, you're going down to Tallahassee. It wasn't really a game that I felt like, if I'm, Wake, if I'm a Wake Forest fan, I felt like, hey, we're really in this game. It, it felt like an 11-point lead, a 10-point lead was almost insurmountable given the way the offense was playing. John Walford, 16 of 34, 184, two interceptions. The two picks obviously hurt them, killed killed some momentum on a couple of drives. But if you're a Wake Forest fan, you got to be really happy with the way the defense has been playing, that's for sure. They forced four turnovers from Florida State. Um, you look at the stat sheet on this and the time of possession and the total yardage and the yards per play numbers and first downs and everything – and nothing about it suggests that this is an 11-point game, nor does it suggest that Florida State was held to 17 points at home, which is the fewest they've had at home in a long, long time. I don't have the exact number on when it was, but I know I saw that it's, it has been a long time since anybody's held Florida State under 20 points at home. So, um, yeah, this is, I mean, this is a, a great performance from Wake Forest and a team, again, Florida State has wild, you know, is a wildly talented team as compared to what Wake Forest is working with. Almost to the point that if I'm a, if I'm a Florida State fan watching this, it's like, I, I realize that Wake Forest is very sound and, and has played well this year, but Florida State's got to be more than 11 points better than Wake Forest. And so, um, kind of a weird game here. Uh, this is another one I, I was kind of going to the wedding and, and at the wedding and then kind of at the reception afterwards and kind of monitoring this one just thinking at what point is Florida State going to take off and go score like 30 points in this game yep and it just never really happened um Dalvin Cook went out with an injury at one point he came back in he still had 25 carries for 115 yards I mean that's pretty good for him (laughs) DeAndre Francois had 10 carries for negative six yards and a touchdown which is a funny stat line um Travis Rudolph 13 catches for 238 yards Obviously, Wake Forest is nobody can cover him. I mean, the good output from the Florida State defense, only 250 yards from Wake Forest. I just I don't know how this was this close of a game, Mike. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the turnover factor had a lot to do with it. But, you know, ultimately, if, if you're Wake Forest, I think you just have to be really happy with with the way you were able to hang in there and kind of tough this one out. But, you know, I think watching the game, the one thing that was – pretty apparent is that Wake Forest offense had no business really being on the field with this Florida State defense and that's kind of significant considering Florida State's defense especially in the secondary has really struggled this year Um, and that's something that we've talked about kind of at length it's it's kind of a tough thing right because Florida State's defense obviously a, a million athletes all over the field and Wake Forest offense just really doesn't have that, and they don't have a lot of guys in the passing game that can kind of spread you out and, and make you pay for mistakes. And, and Florida State, especially in the secondary, they're prone to making some mistakes, at least this year. And the whole problem that Wake Forest has is they don't really have a lot of a lot of guys in the passing game that Florida State's defense, with their athletes out there, would really be concerned about. And I think that was the one 
you could really see the talent gap, the athleticism gap between Florida State's defense and Wake Forest's offense in this one. But overall, I think Wake Forest has the talent on defense to play with anybody in the ACC, and I think they were able to prove that on Saturday, um, you know, despite the large the large yardage differential. I mean, it only ended up being 17-6, pretty hard-fought win for Florida State, but by the same token, it, it didn't necessarily seem like it was all that close. You want to hear the secretly weird angle to this, Mike? Go for it. So Florida State fans look at this game against Wake Forest hoping it was kind of a tune-up game. Probably in the same way that Clemson fans were looking at the NC State game hoping it was a tune-up game. Because both these teams have a bye week next weekend and then they play in Tallahassee the following weekend. Uh, So (laughs) neither of these teams is really riding a hot streak. Uh... Florida State has now lost to UNC at home, beaten Miami on the road by one point, and beaten Wake Forest at home in an effort where they scored 17 points. Uh, Clemson kind of fallen back down to earth at a super inopportune time. So these teams have a week to collect themselves, and then they'll they'll play each other the following week. You know, the the weekend before Halloween in Tallahassee, and that'll I think that that'll have a pretty big role in the ACC Atlantic race. Uh, because, as we kind of mentioned before, Clemson's a little bit delicate. They they can potentially be beaten on the right day. Um, and that might open the door for Louisville down the road. So things to uh, keep an eye on, kind of monitor there. Okay, so again, this is why we can't like have weddings in the fall. Those are the days that stuff gets really super weird. But uh, congrats, Sean and Jess. I was glad I was able to be there. Um <laughs> Moving on to a game I actually was kind of able to monitor and legitimately was sitting at a table at the reception watching this game and to which my wife looked at me and thought, are you kidding me? Like, what are you doing? I was like, this is what happens again when you get married in October and stuff. Really important things going on here. Yeah, yeah, this matters. Um, This was a game that also did not go the way that we thought it would. Uh, This is becoming a theme. Um, it, go not ACC, a, right? Yeah. Uh, go ACC, yeah. Not not a shocking upset, maybe, by any means, um, but an upset nonetheless. Miami was a 7.5-point favorite at home, taking on North Carolina. Miami trying to regroup after a, a loss to Florida State the f- previous weekend. Carolina trying to regroup after a nasty loss to Virginia Tech the previous weekend. We said, well, Miami's going to be able to run the football with Joe Yearby, Mark Walton, against a really pedestrian and you know UNC run defense. And ultimately, that plus maybe the home field advantage is what's going to make the difference in this game. And, Mike, that's what happened, right? That's not what happened, Joey. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, common thread here. We're now 0 for 3 here. Um, this is good. This is what you guys listen to this podcast for is honesty and accountability. Actually, yeah, I tweeted at you this morning. We're still good at this, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's... They haven't kicked us off the air yet. Yeah, exactly. Um Imagine that we're our own boss. Um, okay, <laughs> so moving on. Uh, yeah, okay, so interesting game here uh, between North Carolina and Miami. Miami comes in, they're thinking, okay, we got ripped off last weekend against Florida State. We're still really good, guys. Um, and they're a good team. I, but North Carolina is also a good team, and they're improving on defense, which is scary. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate. Are you sure? if you're in or- yeah. Um, Here's, here's the thing. So if you're North Carolina, you're hoping that your improvement on defense comes before 
you get into the meat of your schedule, um, and it didn't. Um, when you're the Tar Heels, look, you lose the opener against Georgia. It's a tough game. You're playing the Virginia Tech game in a monsoon and try to throw the ball a million times, which doesn't work. You know, uh, we saw the same thing lead to Notre Dame's demise last week, obviously playing in a hurricane. But look, North Carolina, they get back on track. Trubisky, 33 of 46, 299, two touchdowns. Obviously, was very good. Um, TJ Logan, he continues to run the ball really well for North Carolina, and it's almost an even split between um, Hood and Logan, whereas last year it was pretty much the Elijah Hood show, and TJ Logan got some looks on third down and then some looks in the passing game um, on longer yardage situations. But what we're seeing right now is a theme where TJ Logan and Elijah Hood are now going pretty much 50-50, and, you know, that could be because, you know, Elijah Hood still might not be 100%. I mean, there are a couple different factors that could play into that, but... Logan's played well, um, running the ball and receiving the ball. He was almost the team's entire offense last weekend against Virginia Tech with Hood out. But even with Hood back this weekend, um, TJ Logan seemed like he was still a lead carrier, and the stats reflect that as well. Uh, running for 84 yards and 15 carries, was averaging 5.6 yards uh, per rush, which I think was huge in this game. He picked up a lot of crucial first downs for North Carolina when Miami's defense kind of had their backs against the wall and needed a stop. Um, Logan was able to extend drives from North Carolina. I think that was huge in this game. Uh, if I'm a Miami fan, um, I'm happy overall with the way the defense played. You know, we're talking about bend but don't break, and that's kind of what Miami did yesterday. Uh, the one thing I'm a little bit concerned about, and the one thing I know some Miami fans are going to agree with here on Brad Kaya, is that if Brad Kaya wants to be considered as a quarterback that's more than a game manager, more than a guy that's, you know, only good in the play-action passing game. He needs to orchestrate final game-winning drives when his team is down. He needs to, you know, back up the measurables, if you will, because you look at Brad Kai as a quarterback, look, he's, he's got a big arm, he's got great size for, for a prospect, and um, he's going to be an NFL player. Uh, here sooner rather than later. But if you're a Miami fan, you would like to see Brad Kaya orchestrate a game-tying, a game-winning drive. And and yesterday he was in a position yet again to do that and wasn't able to convert. It, it's t- it's tough pill to swallow if you're a Miami fan because you think you have this really good quarterback. And I agree, I think he's very good. But at the same time, really good quarterbacks need to get the job done uh, when the game's on the line. And Kaya has not been able to do that. So that's kind of the... The hard truth with Brad Kaya right now, um, and some of it has to do with play calling, but some of it has to do with him just, hey, you know, you got to tighten up here and, and make all the throws that you need to make to win the game. And I'm not sure if you're a Miami fan right now, you're all that confident that if the game's on the line, Kaya is going to lead you down the field to win, which is a scary thought. Um, but anyway, ba- uh, back to running the football. Miami's a pretty good running team. North Carolina's run defense has not been good in a really long time. But Miami only mustered 139 yards on 36 carries. They averaged less than four yards per rush in this game. And to be honest with you, it was only when North Carolina went up a couple touchdowns that Miami decided to start running the ball with Mark Walton and Joe Yearby and had some success. And a lot of the reason for the success was because North Carolina's expecting Miami to throw the ball a lot more when they're down a couple scores and they didn't, they're, they're hitting them with all these running plays and 
you know, I'm wondering if Mark Rick's going to sit back, look at this game film, and wonder, you know, what could have been if, you know, maybe we ran the ball a little bit earlier in this game and kind of focused on on that end. Uh, maybe the game plan wasn't where it should have been. And I think Miami needs to be a run-first team to be successful and then throw based off of that with Brad Kaya. And they didn't really do that in this game um, until it was kind of too late. So I think that's those are a couple takeaways here uh, from this one. But it definitely didn't turn out the way that we thought it would. Brad Kaya, 16 of 31 for 224. The, the, the really telling stat in this game, like, first of all, if you look at time of possession, and I, I keep going back to this stat, but this is this tells us so much. North Carolina was one second short of 33 minutes of possession. And that is one of the most up-tempo, refuses-to-possess-the-ball teams in the country. That's Over a, two quarters. That's more than eight minutes more than their season average of possession. I mean, that's that's insane. And it was aided by the fact that they were 14 of 23 on third down. Meanwhile, Miami was 4 of 15 on third down and 2 of 3 on fourth. Uh, so the third down conversion, the ability to sustain and finish drives here was a huge story in this game. Um, I don't know why Miami was having such problems running the ball. If you look at what North Carolina's defense has done this year, this was the the lowest per carry average that they have allowed in anything that resembled normal weather conditions. Uh, and that by that I mean the only time that anybody has run for fewer yards per carry was last week against Virginia Tech in a game that happened in a hurricane where the Hokies had to run the ball 66 times. So they knew exactly what was coming. In this game, under four yards per carry... I mean, that's only happened one other time that anyone has held under five yards per carry this year, and that was James Madison. Uh, and Miami, a team with good running backs, you know, and uh, as far as we can tell, the rest of this year has had a good running game. I don't know where that went. I mean, Joe Yerby, Mark Walton, 34 carries for about 156 yards. I mean, that's fine, but that's not what you need to do if, you gotta, if you're going to go beat North Carolina, and especially not if you, if you can't, again, stay on the field and sustain drives. Uh, I think you're spot on. They got to get better from Brad Kaya. Fifty uh, percent completion is not going to do it for a guy like that, who should be one of the first quarterbacks off the board in the NFL draft probably next year. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, we saw a good Mitch Trubisky on Saturday. He was thirty-three of forty-six, two two ninety-nine, two touchdowns, seventy-one point four percent completion. That's a good. That's a good day from him. Uh, back to his his uh, good ways of quarterbacking. Um, I'm, I'm with you that I really like the way they've been kind of going back and forth between TJ Logan and Elijah Hood. Um, I, I think they have a pretty good thunder and lightning effect, not that Hood is particularly slow or Logan is particularly easy to bring down, but Logan definitely a very good change of pace guy who, who can do a lot of different things for him and, and can give defenses a lot of problems. Um, this is... Man, you, you talk about that internal dialogue that Mark Rick was sitting there having with himself. That's the kind of thing that he was doing a little bit at Georgia. Um, these games where, by all means, I mean, looks like you were the favorite. Vegas said you're the favorite. There's a reason for that. You're probably the better team, and you came away with a lo- with a loss at home. Um, which you know, the most recently coached Mark Rick teams did this weekend. You know, but. That goes to Georgia losing to Vanderbilt, too. Just going to throw that in there. It's a good day. Nice little jab. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, and so now I'm sitting here thinking, well, if Georgia Tech doesn't fumble twice and let both those go back for touchdowns, Miami be 0-3 in conference. Yep. I mean, that's that's the difference right now. And that is, that's bizarre, and that's not good. And uh, Miami, I would imagine, is probably going to fall out of the rankings here. This was a stinker from them at home, and it, it just not a good follow-up after a loss to Florida State. And to be fair, falling apart after losing to Florida State was kind of Miami's calling card there for several years, and you wonder if we might be seeing the same thing again. For Cam Underwood's sake, I hope not. <laughs> It'd be really unfortunate if if he lost his bet. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, anyways, sorry, Yeah. Dan. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, tough loss for Miami. I think Miami's a good team. They're, they're obviously much improved. Uh good not great and it's the same thing with Virginia Tech it's good not great um but I think fans need to temper expectations a little bit I think you know both fan bases have kind of this expectation that you know the team is you know all of a sudden you know up there as one of the best teams in school history just because they've won a few games in a row I mean it's absurd so you know I think both fan bases now know they have to temper the expectations a little bit but by the same token know that the seasons can still be successful here down the stretch if they, you know, win some win some football games and they can still get into a decent bowl game at least at this stage of the game. North Carolina 20, Miami 13. You wonder if this maybe changes the uh, the sense of power in the Coastal Division uh, where we thought that Miami might be the second best team in the division. It might be North Carolina. Um, then again, it also starts to look like the Coastal is starting to cannibalize itself a little bit, so it's about that time of the year. Um, anyways... Mike, is anything is anything not on fire in South Bend right now, or is just the whole thing looking like a scene out of like an apocalypse movie or something? I was gonna say if I'm Deshaun Kaiser, I'm declaring for the draft three weeks ago. Like, get before, the hell out of there. Yeah, like get the hell out of there. Um, no, I mean Joey, honestly, there's not a ton to say about this game. Notre Dame goes up ten nothing. Um, you know. Stanford scores a touchdown off of an Irish turnover. And then Brian Kelly pulls the plug too early here on Deshaun Kaiser. Um, a lot of a lot of pressure there. It was it was 10-7. Um, you know, Kaiser's under a lot of pressure. He throws the second interception of the game. It was it was a overthrow by about five or ten yards. It looked like it was clear miscommunication between quarterback and receiver. But regardless, Kaiser didn't have a ton of time to throw anyway. Um, but, you know, you can't make excuses for an interception that's really that bad. Um, but Brian Kelly said, okay, I'm going to bring in Malik Zaire, who has proved absolutely nothing. Um, he comes in the game. Um, they go three and out. And then he comes in for another possession. Snap goes over his head, which, you know, to Zaire's you know, you know, defense obviously isn't his fault. But they snap it out of the back of the end zone for a safety. Um, and... Really, from there on in, you know, I think when looking at Stanford, they end up winning the game, um, obviously 17-10, but the the one real takeaway is that Brian Kelly kind of gives Kaiser the quick hook, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense, and his defense for it after the game was, I thought Zaire could, you know, come in off the bench and give us some momentum. But then, at, you know, in the post game, the follow-up question was, okay, well, is Deshaun Kaiser the quarterback moving forward? And he said, absolutely, Deshaun Kaiser's our starting quarterback. Well, if he's your starting quarterback, if he's as good as everybody thinks he is and, and you know, knows that he is, then why are you taking two possessions away from him? Um, 
especially when you have a chance to pick up your first win in, you know, two weeks, um, and only your, you know, only your third win of the season. Like, why are you taking the ball out of Deshaun Kaiser's hands? He's your best player on both sides of the ball, and he's a surefire first-round pick. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And then I thought it was unfair to then bring Deshaun Kaiser in when, you know, you're down seven on the final drive and you're asking Kaiser to now come off the bench essentially cold. He hasn't played now since middle of the third quarter, and you're asking him to orchestrate a game-winning drive. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And if I'm a Notre Dame fan, I don't want to be reactionary and say you need to fire Brian Kelly because Notre Dame's 2-5, and five, but I think you need to consider firing Brian Kelly because you're 2-5 and five and you're losing games because of his judgment as a head coach. And I think this is probably the second or third game this year where that's been the case, where he's made a couple of questionable coaching decisions offensively and defensively down the stretch in games that have decided the outcome. And you're allowed to have a down year. You're not allowed to have many down years in South Bend because the alumni and the Bend, the boosters and um, – you know, the fans of the team, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that Notre Dame job just because of the tradition they have there at Notre Dame. But you're allowed to have a down year, but by the same token, you're not allowed to have a down year and then also be a coach who's the cause of the down year. And I think Brian Kelly has a pretty big hand in why Notre Dame's 2-5. and five. And I think after pulling Kaiser yesterday for Zaire, a lot of fans and maybe the athletic department you know, when evaluating Brian Kelly's job at the end of the year, need to determine whether or not he's the right guy, the right in-game decision maker uh, to move this program forward um, in the coming years. And I think that's a question that they're going to have to answer here because Notre Dame, look, they're two and five. They're going to have a hard time making it's It's almost impossible at this point for them to make a bowl game, uh, given their schedule. They still have oh, to Mike, play. Mike. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're playing at home against Miami in two weeks. They have Virginia Tech at home, which it won't be an easy game. They're going on the road at USC, who's played great football here the last couple of weeks. They're starting to turn turn things around there. It looks like in Southern California. I mean, this is not an easy schedule for Notre Dame here. They, I mean, they still have Navy and Army, and Navy's in the top twenty-five, and Army's a service academy this year that can't be taken lightly. They're running the ball great, as we've as we talked about here uh, last few weeks on the podcast. So. There's no easy road for Notre Dame to make a bowl game. It's almost impossible for them to do so at this point. So if you're Notre Dame and, and you're their athletic department, you have to consider whether or not Brian Kelly's the right man for the job moving forward, which is crazy to say, given the year that they had last year, and they were essentially two or three plays away from being in the college football playoff. But you know, even last year, Brian Kelly made some questionable decisions with clock management. He did that again this year on a couple different occasions. Michigan State is the one game you can point to with from a clock management standpoint, Joe, and I think, you know, you and I talked about that before. But if you're a Notre Dame fan, you're wondering if Brian Kelly's the right guy for the job, and I can drone on and on about this for hours, but, uh, you know, you get the point. When you pull, you know, the best quarterback, one of, the, one of the probably top five or six quarterbacks in college football and one of the top professional prospects for sure out of the game when you're, you know, you're reeling and you need you need points quickly and you think that's a good idea to put Malik Zaire in cold who hasn't really proven anything all year and was terrible in the Texas game. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and I think it ended up costing Notre Dame the game and a game that they should have won against Stanford without Christian McCaffrey. So offensively, it's a tough break. Defensively, I thought the Irish played better. Um, again, you didn't you didn't play McCaffrey, so how good is this defense really? Um, against the Stanford offense, it hasn't been uh, nearly as good as a lot of people predicted them to be. But the last couple of weeks, I think, you know, 
Yes, they played in a monsoon last weekend, so you can throw that to the side, but I thought the second half against Syracuse, the Irish defense played a lot better. So it looks like things are moving in a better direction defensively, but the offense is sputtering. I'm not sure really what they're going to do about that moving forward here the rest of the season. You talk about pulling Kaiser when they did. Um, that is, I mean, that's the kind of knee-jerk reaction that you try to hire a head coach to be level-headed enough not to make. Um, that is, it was telling. I mean, they didn't even stick with it. They brought him back in, and he finished the game. But, I mean, uh, Mike, I I was thinking about this, and I, I kind of hated to bring it up, but Notre Dame's going to miss a bowl game. Notre yeah. Dame is not going to be bowl eligible, and I, I never would have thought I was going to say that this year. I thought for sure, I mean, this is like a 7-8 win team. But, yeah, they've had a lot of problems this year, and yet – I'll tell you the other piece of this that's got to be absolutely maddening for Notre Dame fans right now. Do you know what the biggest loss they've had so far as far as point spread has been? I believe seven. It was eight to Michigan State. Yeah, I knew it was Michigan State. I couldn't remember if it was seven or eight. That makes sense. They've lost five games, and the biggest loss was by eight points. That is... That is really maddening and frustrating if you're if you're an Irish fan here. Um, There's a coaching element. There's you know, I mean that's that's really what it comes down to when it's that small of a margin of error. Yeah, this is this is the kind of season that can very easily start to degrade a locker room that can cause a lot of problems that you wouldn't be having if things turned out slightly differently and on a game by game basis. Um, and and the one other thing, Joey, real quick is. This scares me if I'm a Notre Dame fan because Kaiser is absolutely going to clear for the NFL draft after the season. And once he does, you're going to be left with a sputtering defense and no quarterback. So what kind of team are they going to be next year? And you have a coach who's proven this year and at points last year, even when Notre Dame was winning, to struggle with in-game decision-making. So you can recruit all you want and... The classic example I bring back is, you know, Miami. They've always recruited well, historically, even under Al Golden, but they didn't have the in-game the in-game management um, perspective of the whole thing down. And I thought it really cost Miami some years where they had as much talent as Florida State, as much talent as a Clemson, and they couldn't even, they didn't even belong on the same field as, as they did when, you know, the games kicked off and, you know, they shared the field together, and obviously Al Golden... You know, losing fifty-eight nothing to Clemson last year proved it ended up costing him his job. You know, the straw that breaks a camel's back. Same thing could be happening here in South Bend. Yeah, I I'm tempted to think that we're kind of watching the beginning of the end of the Brian Kelly era up there, maybe for better or worse. Okay, we got two more games we got to hit here. We'll try to get away from the sadness here a little bit. So uh, we got to talk real quick. Last conference game that we got to talk is uh, Pittsburgh forty-five, Virginia thirty-one. They covered. This game turned into a huge shootout, Mike. Uh, it was 35-28 to 28 at halftime before Pittsburgh was able to kind of lock things down on defense and, and get this thing under control. Pittsburgh did cover, again, this was a, a line on this game was, uh, I believe, 3.5 at closing. I saw it as low as 3. It started at 5. We thought it was going to go up from there, and it only got lower. So I don't know what was going on there. That was kind of odd. Uh, and certainly, I mean, it was a close game for a while, and Virginia, I think, had a lead after the first quarter and things like this. But 
Pittsburgh eventually showed that they were the better team and got things under control. Only gave up three points after halftime. And they win by two touchdowns, Mike. And, and that's kind of about what we were expecting. It was. I mean, you and I thought that this could potentially turn into a shootout. This was more of a shootout than I expected, um, especially the first half. That got wild. Um, Kirk Benkert for UVA, and Joe, you and I alluded to this last week, goes for 278 and a touchdown, played pretty well for the Virginia offense. They can sling the ball around a little bit there in Charlottesville, and I think it's the offense especially is heading in a much better direction. It's not all doom and gloom like like it was a month ago for them. Um, you know, defensively, obviously, they're still having issues. Jordan Whitehead's interception and return, it was 58 yards, I believe, I think turned the game around. Um, I think that was the huge momentum swing that Pittsburgh needed because they're giving up, you know, they're giving up all sorts of plays in the secondary. Ben Kurt was thrown all over him in the first half. And then Whitehead returned that interception back to the house, and I think that completely changed the game and changed the momentum there in Pittsburgh's favor. And if you're a Pittsburgh fan, you have to be happy with the resiliency your team showed there on the road. You know, it's it's a game that is a little bit tricky because you know that Virginia, if they have one strength, it's throwing the football. And, you know, the one weakness of your Pittsburgh in the secondary, you know, the secondary is it. Um at least defensively. And you look at Virginia, and they were able to throw all over him in the first half. And Pittsburgh came right back. You know, Jordan Whitehead changes the game with the interception, and they were able to grind it out in the second half, run the football pretty well. And if I'm a Pittsburgh fan, I'm really happy with the outcome. That's a good win on the road there at Virginia, it, you know, against a team that's playing much better of late. So a good conference win for Virginia, or for Pittsburgh, excuse me, over Virginia. And it's a game you, if, if you're Pittsburgh and, you know, still aspire to potentially win the Coastal here, or at least be in contention, you know, when the season comes to, you know, starts to wind down, you have to be really happy uh, with the way they responded because this is a game they absolutely had to win, and they went out and they got the job done on the road. The ACC Coastal is definitely very much wide open for Pittsburgh or anybody else right now. Uh, you've got four one-loss teams, and even one and two Miami is still in it. You might even make an argument that one and three Georgia Tech might even still be in it. Probably not. But, you know, we can be optimistic for <laughs> Georgia Tech fans, you know. Probably shouldn't be, but we could be. Um, yeah, no, this is a this is a, a good kind of get-control-of-it game for Pittsburgh. Uh, like you said, I mean, Kurt Benkert had a good day thrown against a, again, a still somewhat questionary Questionable Pittsburgh secondary. There you go. Okay, yeah. Been a long weekend. Um, Nailed it. Yeah, killing it over here. Um, Yeah, Nate Peterman, again, pretty pedestrian, 11 for 21, 137 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Uh, That's pretty good. And then Pittsburgh, again, had four guys go over 20 yards. James Conner leading the way with 20 carries for 90 yards and two touchdowns. Um, Yeah, I mean, good day for Pittsburgh and, and... winning a game that easily could have started to get away from them at certain points. Um, like you said, I mean, they're very, they're very much alive in the, in the coastal race and things could continue to get interesting. Uh, they're technically in second place tied with Virginia tech right now at two and one trailing only North Carolina at three and one. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue to see how, how Pat Narduzzi's year two goes uh, for the Panthers. One last game here, Mike, this is the one I was in attendance for. This is Georgia tech 35, Georgia Southern, 24. Uh, Georgia Tech starts real hot. They scored three touchdowns in the first half on their first three possessions. 
Uh, it was a really good start. They had a, a long run. They had a long pass, and they had another long run. Um, they they overall performed well offensively. Um, I mean, 437 yards of offense on really not a whole lot of snaps, only 55 snaps. So that's pretty good. Um, the thing that came out of this game that started to really irritate a lot of people, we talked earlier about third-down conversions that uh, Miami gave to UNC. A, a, a Georgia Southern offense that has not been very good necessarily this year and that a lot of Georgia Southern fans were coming over in the comments and from the rumble seat saying how bad they've been this year. Uh, 13 for 20 on third down and 2 of 3 on fourth down. So in 20 third downs, 15 of them resulted in first downs without a punt. Uh, not good. Held on to the ball. Not for good, Bob. Th- not good, Bob. Held on to the ball for 33 and a half minutes, the Eagles did. Ted Roof's defense continues to struggle to get off the field, and they finally started to get some plays for loss, got a sack and stuff by blitzing literally seven players at one point. So, yeah, kind of more of the same from Georgia Tech. You'd like to see some better things from them. Uh, things really slowed down after a couple of long plays and, and big drives in the first half. But uh, I, I continue my crusade, Mike, in defense of Justin Thomas's passing abilities. Uh, I posted a column today uh, in full defense of him. He finishes this game 7 of 11 passing for 172 yards and a touchdown. That's pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, um, Georgia Tech gets it done at home. That's 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 good, but uh, it was probably a little closer than it should have been, and probably you know would have liked to see a little more uh, a dominance and uh, handling of what should be a decidedly lesser opponent in Georgia Southern, and it's certainly not a, a Southern team as good as we've seen the last couple of years. I was gonna say, Joey, they covered, right? If the line stayed at ten and a half, um, they, they covered. covered barely. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's more of the same for Georgia Tech. Uh, you didn't really, you know, if, if I'm a Georgia Tech fan, I'm not really sure you, you learn anything more from the Yellow Jackets than, you know, you may have learned, you know, in games prior. I mean, I think it was more of the same, you know, hit and miss running game. Uh, Justin Thomas throws the ball pretty well but has no receivers, um, and, and defensively they were fine. I mean, that's kind of yeah. – Georgia Tech's a tough team to figure out. I mean, I think they're they're obviously two wins away from a bowl game. They're going to get to a bowl game the way they're playing. Um, they're a team that's that's okay. They're they're an okay team in a coastal division that's wide open. But the issue with Georgia Tech is they don't really have. I mean, now with three losses, I mean they don't really have a shot at getting to the ACC championship from the Coastal Division. I mean, all hell would have to break loose, and then even then you're, you're sitting there thinking, all right, well, the Coastal just wasn't very good this year if Georgia Tech gets there with three losses. Um, but, it, you know... Stranger as, as things a, have happened, Mike. It, stranger things have happened, especially in this conference. Um, six and six Georgia Tech made it in 2012, thanks yeah, to postseason ineligible Miami and North Carolina. So. I was, I was going to say the 2000, I, I couldn't remember if it was 12 or 13, but yeah, that's... Exactly what I was thinking of, actually. Um, yeah, so stranger things have happened, obviously. But yeah, if you're a Georgia Tech fan, I'm not really sure, and Joey, I guess I'll defer to you a little bit here, I'm not really sure what you make of this season, you know what I mean? Like, obviously it's an improvement from last year, but it's not where, you know, Georgia Tech was two or three years ago, um, when they're sitting there and they're one of the best teams in the ACC, um, they're one of the best teams in the Coastal, they're 
getting to conference championships or playing extremely well um, on both sides of the ball, sound football. I just feel like the last two years, they haven't been as sound on the offensive line. I think that's really hurt them. But they're better this year than they were last year. So from an evaluation standpoint, I'm not sure you know, what the expectations are versus reality, as is the case with a lot of teams in the ACC at this point. They are better on offense. They, the, the pass protection in particular has been outstanding. The offensive line has been better but still has room to grow. Um, the, the biggest thing they're lacking on offense is a real downfield threat uh, at wide receiver. Ricky June and Brad Stewart have been making some plays down the field, but certainly they could be doing a, a little more to kind of blow the top off the defense. Uh, Justin Thomas has been doing a nice job of passing to uh, a lot of his A-backs, especially uh, Quay Searcy and Clinton Lynch have done a really nice job in the passing game. Honestly, Mike, if we're, if, if we're trying to find the, the weak point in Georgia Tech right now, it's probably the defense. And it was, it was the defense that was keeping them in games earlier in the year, but there's, there's become a lot of frustration with the, the Ted Roof system that has just not been providing the type of results that you'd hope for. And so, yeah, the, the offense has developed throughout the year and it's getting better every week. Uh, and the problem is that defense seems to be degrading a little bit. They've been dealing with some injuries and such, which isn't helping, but... Just a lot of the strategy just doesn't make a lot of sense and, and seems to be making things a lot harder than they need to be. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, and, and really when you look at the two losses for Georgia Tech, I mean, the Pittsburgh game was entirely winnable. If you get a fourth down conversion late on fourth and short, or if you, I don't know, the pass that you tip doesn't fall into the hands of a tight end who goes for a 75-yard <laughs> touchdown, um, oh, you know. Man. Stuff happens, I guess. Um, and, and again, the Miami game, I mean, you fumble twice, they pick it up, run it in for touchdowns, and there's your game. I mean, that's the difference. So to think that there's just this, this bad team I don't think is really accurate, but to think that maybe they sh- should be better is, is definitely, I mean, that's pretty spot on, I think. So, um, yeah, they – so we've looked at the schedule moving forward. They, they got a bye week – next week before a homecoming game against Duke. I think that has to be a win for various reasons. Um, they also for got bowl reasons for bowl reasons. Absolutely. Uh, they've got another game at home against Virginia in late November. Has, has to be a win. Has to be a win. That right there, that puts you at six wins. And I think that they are capable of stealing one between a road trip to North Carolina and a road trip to Georgia Honestly, Georgia at this point is starting to look exceptionally beatable. And I'm still not willing to say that Georgia Tech should be like a 50% or better win percentage in that game, but um, where a lot of times we might put that at like a 15 to 20% win percent, uh, that might be creeping more towards like 40 to 45. um, As Georgia Tech continues to improve and Georgia does not. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that some... Struggles over the last couple of weeks to start out October has really capped off what we could end up seeing from Georgia Tech this year. They could have recovered from a rough loss to Clemson, but ultimately, I mean, it is what it is with Georgia Tech. And they, this is, you were hoping for better when Justin Thomas was a senior. You get a lot of guys back from injury from last year. So, um, hopefully, looking like 
maybe like an eight and five finish, maybe at best. Which, I mean, it won't get Paul Johnson fired. Nope, it definitely <laughs> it, won't. It won't make a lot of people very happy, though. I don't know. I mean, I guess if they beat Georgia, that's a good thing. People will like that. A lot of people in that fan base, I feel like. I mean, we're we're rambling on on here, but I feel like a lot of people in the, you know, a lot of fans in the Georgia Tech fan base are not huge fans of Paul Johnson and want to find every reason to get him fired. But if he's getting you eight and nine wins a season, who are you going to get that's, you know, much better, I guess? It's, oh, Mike, we, we could do a whole deep dive on this topic. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's been discussed extensively. In front down of the rabbit hole, you know? That's, yeah, exactly my point. I mean, it's been such a hot topic, I feel like, within that fan base that, you know, you can go on and on. We'll do that sometime. We don't need to do that today. we got to get out of here. This has been a long long recap episode for maybe what it should have been. But we've got two things we got to do before we get out of here. First of all, we got to get that Go ACC moment of the week. Uh, so we struggled for contenders here a little bit, and then we remembered there was that game that happened Friday night, uh, Louisville and Duke. And we came down to the wire. I mean, it was inside of three minutes, and Duke was only down three, had a chance to win the game. Louisville's kicker lines up for a long field goal to try to give him a six-point lead, and he missed it. Mikey pulled it pulled it wide left, except... Except he got running into the kicker, right? I mean... Yeah, extended whoops. the drive. Yeah, except we're going to extend that drive. Yeah, just... Man, I was going to say... Come on, Duke. Uh, come on. We, you know, we, we ramble on and on about how well-coached they are and how they don't make any mistakes, and then they do that. Like, it's it's got to be our Go ACC moment of the week. Congratulations to Duke, right? I mean, that's... Duke over can't. here not, not making any mistakes and then making the mistake. Yep, can't have that happen. Um, well, well-coached until the game's on the line. No, um... Yeah, swing and a miss on that one. But, hey, I mean, it's a surprise they were even in the game at that point. Of course. Hey, Duke, you had a chance. Oh, well. Go ACC. Finally, Mike, the Brian Van Gorder Memorial U Tried Award is making its way back home to its roots in South Bend this week as uh, the aforementioned quarterback situation was managed in a creative fashion, we'll say. Yeah, let's... Bench a surefire first-round draft pick in next April's NFL draft and replace him with Malik Zaire, who essentially couldn't even run the option against Texas in the opener, and now we're going to throw him in to be the catalyst against Stanford defense? Give me a break. Um, Brian Kelly, uh, you get the you-tried award for trying to push momentum in the offense's favor at Notre Dame, but just doing it in the potentially most boneheaded way possible, taking two or three possessions away from one of the best quarterbacks in college football. So swing and a miss, Brian Kelly. Uh, you get the Brian Van Gorder Memorial You Tried Award this week. The award named after the coordinator you fired earlier this month. Um, it's okay. You'll be following in his footsteps after the season. Brian Kelly, you tried to manage that quarterback situation. It didn't go too well, although... This might actually be the joke on us, Mike. If Brian Kelly is trying to get himself fired, trying to get some of that payout money. Tried successfully. Yeah, he might be successful, in which case he doesn't deserve this award. But for if assuming he's honest in his intentions and trying to manage this quarterback situation, he is more than deserving this week. Okay, 
Mike, this has been a, a good recap show. It's gone on for an hour and 11 minutes now that we're uh, trying to cut the length on these down. This is good. We're doing great. That's right. So the good news is that uh, we've got a recap show, that we're, or a, uh, excuse me, a recap show. This was the recap show, damn it. Uh, we've gonna, got a, it was so good, we're going to make two of them. Yeah, we're going to do it again. Uh, no, we're going to do a preview show later this week, uh, talking about all the sweet week eight, week eight action, which, if you haven't looked at the slate, uh, all of that week eight action is all of, I don't know, like four ACC games. So yep. we might get creative with how we use up our time this week. Uh, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, we'll be back later this week, certainly talking about all the action we're going to see later this week from the ACC. Uh, maybe some teams beyond, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Um, time will tell. And we can't really, like, improvise with promises here as we uh, record live. So, uh, anyways, Mike, you have a, a good week. You need a, you need a good week right now. I so. need a good week. Yeah. I need, I need a good week. I've had, I've had a rough last – if you count the Red Sox losing last Monday night, I've had a rough – and getting swept out of the playoffs. I'm having a rough last seven or eight days uh, here in the, the sports uh, sports universe. So. Hey, welcome, know, he'll come back around for me. Welcome to the life of an Atlanta sports fan, brother. This is this is our life. I, I sat there and I watched the Falcons lose today on a not pass interference call that was obviously pass interference on Julio Jones. That's how Swing it goes. Miss. That's, Swing and miss. That's my life, man. Welcome. No, anyways. All right, Mike, this has been fun. We'll, we'll do it again next week. Uh, so if you want to reach us on Twitter, I'm at FTRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel ACC. Together we're at BC Podcast ACC. I'm about to nail the longest email address known to man, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. It really rolls off the tongue. Um, yeah, if you want to find us, you can subscribe on iTunes, on Google Play. You can find us on SoundCloud. Uh, we try to post these things around, especially on Twitter and such, so follow us there. Send us your questions. Uh, we'll probably have a lot of time on Wednesday to get to them. But uh, until then, Mike, enjoy, and we'll, uh, we'll talk again later this week. Yep, sounds good. All right, until then, for Mike McDaniel, I'm Joey Weaver. Go ACC.